eyes. We see a, a candidate who professed Jesus Christ, who received Jesus Christ into his heart or her heart as a personal savior. They are being immersed in the water, symbolizing that they are willingly forsaking and dying with Christ, forsaking the past nature, forsaking the past life, past values. Okay, And then now they rise up again as they come out from the water, symbolizing that they have decided to follow Jesus. They want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. They want to live like Christ, not Christ, but like Christ. They want to live a Christ-like uh, uh, values and, and life. They want to follow Jesus, and they want to live for Christ. And that's the picture of salvation. And it is only possible because of Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf, so that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. We shall be reconciled with the Heavenly Father, and we shall be able to come together to follow Jesus and continue to live for Jesus Christ. And we hope that everybody, Christians, as you see the, as you relive the baptism and remember your own baptism or remember your own joining the church, that this is a reminder that we have committed ourselves to follow Jesus and we will go all the way. And it is by God's grace, uh, He is the beginner and the perfecter of our faith that He will carry us through all the way as we follow Jesus. And friends, if you are here for the first time, you see this picture in your eyes, I pray that you will consider that. What does it mean to you? You know, it means to many, many of you. It means all the world to all of us. But we hope that it means to you as well as you see the pictures of three individuals being immersed in the water, rise up again, live for Jesus. Could that be your life as well when you reconcile with the Heavenly Father and walk with Him and journey together with the rest of the church body of Christ and, and grow together? And this morning, I want to share with you a topic, a Nike-like moment. And before we go to the Nike-like moment, let's go to the Kodak moment. Remember Kodak? This is a Kodak moment, right? You go to the scenic, uh, scenic uh, places, and they will have a, a sign there that says, this is a Kodak moment. Remember when we still have the camera, Kodak camera and the film? Uh, this is a Kodak moment. It means capture this time. This is a beautiful scenery. It's worth capturizing. It's worth captivating in your heart. So use your camera, use your film to, to freeze it for eternity, to freeze it for posterity, so that when you re-look at it again, you remember that I've been here. This is a nice place. This is a Kodak moment. But this morning, as we study God's Word, I think we are more like a Nike moment. What is the catchphrase for Nike? Remember? Just do it, right? Just do it. This is a Nike moment. This is a time for actions. Because the scriptures that we're going to read today is going to bring people from reading God's Word into acting out, into living out God's Word in their lives. So let's read together. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 uh, to 18, all the way to the end. I Just for the sake of our new friends here, I just printed it on the PowerPoints and we can read together. Okay, beginning in verse 13, let's read together. On the second day, the heads of fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in books during the feast of the seventh month. Okay, and... Sorry, it's not working very well. Okay, verse 15. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olives, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make boots as it is written. So the people went out and brought them 
and make booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the houses of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rules. And this reading of the scriptures already told you that this is truly a Nike moment. Because it begins with the study of God's word. And it started last week. When we began in verse 1 and all the way to verse 12, we saw that the people were so convicted by the reading of God's word. They came and listened to Ezra. They came and listened to God's word. And they were so convicted that they wept. Because they found out that they were so far away from the standard. When you have the standard, you can know where you are, right? When you say, this is a standard, then I can measure where I am. When they found the standard of God's reading, they know that they were way below the standard of God's expectation, and they were weeping, and they were grieving for their own sins and inadequacy, and, and, and their complacency in their, in their lifestyle. But the Ezra and the Levites read by the people, this is the holy day, this is the day set apart for the Lord. Do not grieve, for the strength of the Lord is for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you look to Jesus, when you look to God and trust in His grace and His love and His salvation, joy comes back to you. Hope comes back to you. Possibilities come back to you. So do not grieve and have joy in the Lord. That's last week. Now, as we begin in verse 13, it says, On the second day, the heads of the household uh, of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They want more. They have tested the goodness of God. They have tested that the word of God is sweeter than honey. And they want more. After the first day, on the second day, they say, now we want to go deeper. We want to study God's word together with Ezra and with the Levites. Now, who are studied that with them? The Bible says, these are the fathers, heads of fathers, houses of all the people. Who, who are they? They are like the, uh, the patriarchs of the different clans. And they come together and say, we want to go deeper, with the intention that they will bring it back to their clans and to teach the parents of each household and expect the parents to bring it to the children. That's the idea. They want to be trained. Trained well enough to pass on the value of God's word to the family. Because they take it upon themselves as disciples of their family. And that's what Pastor Terrence, our family ministry pastor, has been reiterating over and over again. The pastors, the counselors, uh, the, the different uh, ministry heads and, and officers and deacons, we can only do that much. We see you once a week. We see you two times or three times a week. But you see your children every day, 24-7, 365. On the leap year, it's 366, right? Every day they see you. They see the faith being lived out. And you are the best person to disciple your children. Even though it's awkward sometimes, 
Even though you are not used to it, but you are still the best person. So we empower you. We encourage you. We, in fact, we want you to help us to bring what is being taught here and go back to your home and go back to wherever you are and, and bring it to your home. And that's what happened in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses reminded people that it has to be taught in a family. It has to be brought into your, your, your personal life for the faith to live out in our lives. Once a week of preaching for an hour, for 45 minutes, a Sunday school lesson for an hour, an hour and a half, it's, gonna do the, it's not going to do the job. You know how we are, we are loaded with information nowadays. How we're just walking out, you know, just walking out that door will be flooded with new information. Well, even sitting here will be flooded with information on the cell phone. There are so many distractions out there. It's so hard to remember. It's so hard to live it out until, unless we actually empower everybody to do it together over and over again until it gets to us. So not only Bible teachers like Ezra and the Levites, but the patriarchs and the patriarchs to the parents will be able to pass on God's word so that we will all grow together. And you know what? When you study God's word, God's word will move you to pay attention to some areas of concern. It will. And that's what happened to the people when they read God's word. When they go into intensity and take God's word seriously, God's word will move you to pay attention to some areas of concern. And usually, usually it is something that reflects the current reality. The macro context out there, or the micro context within your heart, within your relationship with God, and within your walk with God, it will be confronting you. What is happening in your life that God is addressing you in our recent preaching or in your own Bible reading today? What is God confronting you? And when you open up God's word, you will be confronted. He will speak to you. Verses 14 and 15 reminds us that they found in the reading of God's word that God has commanded them to observe the feast of the booths. The feast of the booths. And not only that, in verse 15, it says to publicize it, to proclaim it, so that the whole community will do it together. Come in a festive spirit to celebrate the feast of booths. What is that feast of booths, right? We don't carry that. We have Christmas, we have Easter's, basically as a church celebration. But we don't have festival of booths. What is that? Well, the festival of booths, sometimes it's called the festival of the tabernacle. It is an annual festival where Israelites will construct temporarily booths, like a tent like booths with branches of olive trees and palm trees or other types of plants. Okay. And then they will live in those booths for seven days. It's not very pleasant, not very com comfortable. There's no AC in there. Okay. But they want to do it once a year for two purposes. One, they want to celebrate the completion of the harvest, right? Uh, the seventh month. In the Jewish calendar, it's about our September and October towards the end of fall. So this is a time for harvest to bring together. So there's a celebration. 
So when we have festival of booths, it's a celebration. But secondly, and more importantly, it serves as a memorial of the days in the wilderness when they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They were dwelling in tents when the Lord has delivered them out of Egypt. So when they celebrate together, it's a reminder of the days in wilderness that of the years in, in, in Egypt when they were being enslaved by Pharaoh and God delivered them through the Red Sea and brought them out. But in their rebellion, they were being sentenced and judged to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were living in tent. They peach tent. So when they live in the booths, it's a reminder. Remember, we used to live in tents in the wilderness. Now, this is what we are today. We have a country. We have our nation. We just built our city wall in the book of Nehemiah. We have Jerusalem. We have temple. We can worship God. So thank God for where we are today. It's by the grace of God. Don't ever forget that. See, why do we have festivals? Why do we have anniversaries? Why do we have all these events? It's to remind us lest we forget. When we have communion, we always have a table here, right? Communion table. And most of the communion tables, you see uh, some words being craft, craft, carved on the wood, right? Lest we forget. Just in case that we will not forget. And we do it monthly. Some churches do it weekly as a reminder. You celebrate birthday once a year, anniversary once a year, Mother's Day, Father's Day once a year. Why? That those values will not be forgotten. Those stories will be retold, reiterated. The details will be brought to attention so that we remember. The whole intention is remember, don't forget, right? So they celebrate every year. Every year they come together. But guess what? Just like most celebrations and festivals, right? You tend to forget the original meaning. Because you add on stuff. You add on more and more traditions and you add on more and more joys and you add on more and more stuff like that. It happens all the time. Like Christmas. Christmas is to celebrate Christ's birth. Guess what? It is just becoming a family reunion for so many people. It's just becoming just that Santa Claus and exchange of gifts. That's all we want. Christ, Christ is out of Christmas now. Easter. Easter is to remember Christ's resurrection, right? We want to celebrate Christ's resurrection. But guess what? It's the Easter bunny that we remember. It's the Easter egg hunting that we remember. It, it is that, that, that Easter buffet that is so popular nowadays that we long for. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is slowly falling out from the celebration of Easter and same for worship service. We come back every week to proclaim the resurrection of Christ over and over again through our engagement and participation in every part of the worship. But guess what? We long for something else. We long for the social life, the social fellowship. How are you doing? Good to see you. Let's go for lunch later. That becomes a highlight of our Sunday worship. See, almost every celebration, every anniversary will fall into some state of deterioration and going downhill and all get mixed up. They all get mixed up. But now they see that, oh, my goodness, 
we have fallen so far away from God's word. This is the seventh month of our Jewish calendar. We're supposed to celebrate the festival of Booth, but nobody cared about that. Nobody even remember. Now, through the reading of God's word, they begin to remember because God's word reminds them. And guess what? They have two weeks. Okay, it, it is the second day of the of this, uh, seventh month of the Jewish calendar, and they will celebrate it on the 15th day. So they have two weeks to proclaim and publish it in verse 15, he says. Proclaim and publish it all over Jerusalem and, and in every town and village. Remind the people that we should come and celebrate God together to proclaim and publish it so that everybody, the whole community, will come together. And that brings us to the second point of my sharing. It begins with the study of God's word, but then it results in the obedience of God's word. The reading and study of the scripture, it's, it's very rewarding. Many of you enjoy that. And many of us love intellectual stretching and intellectual uh, uh, absorptions. You gain insight and wisdom from the study of God's word. And most of us will be contented to just stay there. But what when revival happens, you will allow the scripture to read you and to study you. We study God's word like a book, like a literature, right? Like chicken soup for the soul. You know, wow, wisdom, especially the book of Proverbs, like how to live, how to talk to people, how to interact, how to gain wisdom. Oh, we love it. It, it helps uh, to, in, in your workplace. It helps in your family. It helps in the husband and wife relationship. Okay? We read God's word to gain insight. But you know what? When revival happens, we will go one step further and allow God's word to read me and to study me, that's when revival breaks up. And we pretty much stop at the first step, study. And we are good at that. Many of us are good students. We love to study and we need to study. But for revival to be experienced by you and me, you take one more step and say, God, study me. Read me with your word. That's when the Bible becomes a mirror. It's a reflection of where you are and where I am. It happens to me so many times. So many times. You know, as a pastor, I, I, I consider myself as a loving person. Right? I consider myself as someone who cares about other people. Right? Well, I try my best to do that. Until one day, it's like 10 years ago, when I read God's word, suddenly it dawned on me, like, hey, Albert, you know what? You are very selfish. If you would tell me early on and say you are a selfish person, I would argue with it. I'll be defensive. No, 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 no. See how many people I serve. No, 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 no. See how many calls I get. And I go right away to minister to the need. No, 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 no. See how many people I have disciple and I have help. But deep, deep within myself, I know, I know, I am just a selfish person. 
I cared about myself too much. I cared about my face, cared about my security, cared about my success, cared about how people look at me too much sometimes that I don't always do it God's way. And I make decisions sometimes based on that too because of my own insecurity. And God's word just suddenly becomes a mirror. I see myself in there and say, wow, I'm selfish. Deep inside, I'm selfish. I try my best to to engage in caregiving, in love giving, in selfless activities, but those are activities. But deep inside, I am just a selfish person. It took me 30, 40 years of Christian walk with the Lord to finally acknowledge that. And that's the power of God's word. I have yet to hurt one person who told me, hey, Pastor, I'm a selfish person. I've heard many people tell me, I don't love the Lord enough, I didn't serve enough, I didn't give enough, I committed enough, I've done enough, I don't do enough, I don't love enough. I'm yet to hear someone tell me, I'm a selfish person. It's so humiliating, it's so hard. And it took me a long, long time until God's word revealed that to me. Because now God's word begins to read me God's word begin to study me, and I come under the teaching of God's word. That's what happened to the Israelites. And that's when revival breaks out, my people. That's when revival breaks out, when you allow God's word to study you and to read you and me. So booths are being built. Booths are being built in the following verses. They build it on the rooftop of the houses. We can't do it in Southern California. Our houses are different. But in Middle East, the houses, the, the roof are flat. They can actually walk on the roof after the sun comes down. It's a desert condition. So in the evening, it's cool. In the day, it's really, really hot. But in the evening, it can be very cold. So they can go up to the roof. So they can build those booths on the rooftop. And then it spreads out in the courts. It says in the squares of Watergate. Where is Watergate? In Jerusalem. Watergate is like in the middle and towards the east. Uh, wall of Jerusalem. And then the gate of Ephraim. What is gate of Ephraim? Ephraim is like northwest corner of the city of Jerusalem. Basically, it's just everywhere. Everywhere, wherever they can find a spot to build the booths, they want to be a part of that. They want to do it because they obey God's word. So you can see all these available open spaces was doctored with these booths as a visible reminder Visible reminder of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when it came out of Egypt. It's all because of God's grace and that's why we have this city, we have this country, and we are right here. As I said, living in the booths is not comfortable, but it serves as a purpose to relive an experience that they will always remember that God has delivered them out of Egypt. Just like the baptism. It's to relive the story of salvation by allowing us to be immersed in the water, symbolizing we will die to the past, and then rising from the water, symbolizing now I'm a new creation in Christ. Now I will live for Jesus Christ. Verse 17, it says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity make booths and live in the booths for the 
But from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. It sounds like they had never done it before since the day of Joshua, since the conquest of the land of Canaan. But it is not true. They have done that before. They have observed the festival of booths before at the days of Solomon. Even when they began their journey in the land of Canaan, they have celebrated booths. But why the Bible says that it's like they have never done that before? Well, the intensity has been unprecedented. They have done it with so much joy. That is unprecedented. With so much participation. That is unprecedented. With so much strictness in their observance. They go all the way. They left nothing behind. They go all the way. That is unprecedented. And they read God's word every day. You know, reading of God's word was not a requirement for the festival of booths. Only in the seventh year, when they had the year of release. The year of release in the Jewish custom is to forget all the, all the debts. Is to return all the houses to the original owner so that they can start all over again. It's like the year of Jubilee. Let's start all over again. And it is only in those years that they had to read God's word that accompany the festival of booth. Now, it's not the year of release, and yet they bring back the reading of God's word because they have the hunger. There is a hunger for God's word, and they, they want God's word to be read in the whole process for them to grow together. And then the Bible says, the festival concluded with a solemn assembly. What is a solemn assembly? A solemn assembly is the conclusion, like a closing ceremony of the festival of Booth. And on that day, they will observe a day of Sabbath so that they can focus to celebrate the goodness of God, to remember what happened in the past, and to recommit to God and grow together. So sometimes they have fasting, other times they have prayers, and with great rejoicing, they continue to read God's word together to bring the whole festival and celebration to a closing. That's the solemn assembly. And they did that just as it is written by God's word. See, they went all the way to do God's word. When you are revived, you will go all the way. You don't go halfway. You don't give your heart part. You don't give your lip service. When you are revived, you go all the way with Jesus. All the way with God. That's the revival that is being experienced by the Israelites. And that's exactly what we need today as FCBC Walnut comes together to worship God and to enter into a new church here and to look at our new building slowly taking shape in 12 months. We can move in and occupy 14,000 square feet of new areas to do ministry, to build a vibrant church that reproduces vibrant church locally and globally, together. And that daily dosage of God's word will compel us to live out our faith in the marketplace, in our neighborhood, and in our family, just like the Israelites. They read God's word, and it results in the obedience of God's word. That's the revived state of the people, and that's a revived state of the church. And you know what? 
when they obey God's word, the Bible says it brought them tremendous joy. Tremendous joy. They come together in great rejoicing. In verse 17, there was a very great rejoicing. Because they know that they are doing it God's way and God is pleased with them. And they feel like they are totally aligned with God. You and I are created by God. And when we do it God's way, we are perfectly at ease. We are perfectly right where we are. It's like when you make a cell phone and the cell phone is serving what a cell phone should be doing. When you make a fridge, a fridge is serving what a fridge should be doing. Everything just aligned together. Dovetail perfectly together. Of course you are joyful. It's like I'm useful. I'm so useful because I'm just doing it God's way as He intended me to be. That's revival, people. That's revival. So the message I have for you today can be capitalized in this phrase here. A revived heart will be moved by God's word to live a life that God intended. To live a life that God intends for you to have me. God's word will move us to obey God. What is God telling us today to obey this morning? Will be a reflection that I have for you this morning. When you open up God's word that the Israelites, the word reads you. God's word study you this morning. Even as I preach, I don't know what happened to you. I never go into your life. I never go into your mind. I don't have to go into your heart, but God knows. And even as I say God's word and speak God's word, the word begins to study you and it begins to read you like a mirror. And what would you look like spiritually? Personal life. You know, we started last week to encourage our people to embark on Bible reading. I don't know how many, how many of you have downloaded U version and start reading God's Word, three, four chapters a day for the whole year. By 12 months, as we dedicate the new building, we also dedicate all the readings that we have done for God and say, God, as a building, as a hardware is taking shape, the software, the heart, you and me, the individual, has to be ready. Study God's Word. Sunday school teachers, cell group leaders, get your people to download and start reading and, and start uh, growing in God's Word, if you have not done so. But secondly, we also encourage our people to come and pray together. We need you to come and pray together on Wednesday night. Because individually, we just don't pray. Pastors don't often pray either. We prepare sermons. We love to prepare sermons. We love to preach. We love to do things for Jesus. But to just sit there and pray, it's hard for all of us I'm sure it's hard for you too. And we get inspired, we get encouraged when we engage one another and pray together. So last week, uh, a few of you came back to the prayer meeting and I'm so, so grateful to you because we need you. But we need more. We need you to come and pray together. Don't feel guilty if you live too far away. Don't feel guilty if you have worked long hours and, and go into the 7 or 8, 8 o'clock. It, 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 it really doesn't help when you come, come to church at 8.30 or 9 o'clock. But if you are able to, if you are able to, if you live close to the church, come and pray together. We need you to come and pray together. And in fact, uh, Awana just told me that they have to stop some people from attending 
the Awana or to, to, to register for Awana because we don't have enough help. So if you have more helpers, then more people will come. And you know what? They come from seekers' family. They come from immigrant family. They come from families who are not Christians, atheistic background. And they are already here at our door. We said, sorry, not enough helper. We can't take you in. If we, we don't even have to go to China or go to, go to Southeast Asia or go to Europe. They come right here. And if some of you felt moved to uh, be a part of Awana, let us know so that we can take them in and then we connect with them and share with them the gospel. Pray together and study God's word together. But secondly, today is the action. It's thought about action. It's about the Nike moment. Just do it. It's time for actions. As you listen to God's word, as it serves as a mirror before you, as it reads you, as it studies you, how should we respond? What will be the action that we need to follow up? For some of you, it's time to reflect on your commitment to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to take up your cross every day, to deny yourself, and to follow Jesus. Deny yourself and let Christ be your Lord and be your master and to follow Jesus. Sometimes the self, the selfish part is becoming too big, like myself. Deep inside, selfishness. Deep inside, insecurity. Deep inside, I just want to build my own ambitions. Maybe for some of you, that's the mirror showing you. And for some of you, maybe there's a sin that you need to repent on. And you need to do that and deal with that. Because that is paralyzing you from following Jesus. And for others, complacency. Complacency. It is a plaque in the middle class American Christianity. The biggest illness, the biggest sickness of American evangelical Christianity. Complacency. Comfortable. Good. Blessings of God, but the blessings turns to curse when we make the blessings an idol to worship. And not a servant to serve us. The comforts, the resources that we have, it serves us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But they become your master. You refuse to let it go. That is the biggest plaque that is inflicting the middle class evangelical Christianity today. And let's be honest with that. Me included. I am a middle class pastor. Paid well. Live in a house. 35 minutes away from church. I live pretty comfortably compared to all my friends, pastors around the world. I am on the top 5%, if not 1%. And I need to deal with that as well. And you know what? Once you have it, it's never enough. You want more. I want more too. I live in a house small. It's really built for retirement. So when I bought that house, it was with a very clear intention. Small, small yard, easy to maintain. You know, be happy with it. But once you move in there, it's nice to have a bigger living room. Oh, it's nice to plant some fruit trees. You know, our side yard is so small. There's no backyard. Front yard, you know, it's like, Less than 10 feet. Saya is 15 feet. That's all I have. The other Saya is shared with our neighbors. And then you move in there and begin to use that. Oh, it would be nice to have a, you know, another 
kitchen countertop where I can do more cookings and just relax. You know, pastors need to relax too, right? So I think God will be pleased with that. You know how you're rationalizing it and how you forgot how you get the house initially and how you were like, I'm happy with that. And once you have that, you want more. Let's be honest. Because I want more too. I have to deal with that as a pastor. And you have to deal with that as a member of this church, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Complacency is probably the biggest plague that is inflicting American evangelical middle class Christians like you and me. How do you deal with that? Is God's word shining a mirror in your life and said, you can build three, four houses and have passive incomes but your biggest security is in me. Because one earthquake can wipe them out. One earthquake. All it takes is the big one to hit us. Maybe that's something that you and I need to deal with. For some of you, forgiveness. Relationships, so hard to maintain. Relationships, so hard to prosper. And then we say the wrong things, did the wrong things, and then become too obstinate, become too stubborn, refuse to say sorry, and let it drag on and on for months and for years. Happens in the church too. Let's be honest. But who is going to be the first one and say, I'm sorry? Who is going to be the first one to, to extend their olive branch and say, I'm willing to deal with that? Nobody wants that. Well, you are more at fault. You did it first. Right? Selfishness. I'm like that too. You did it first. You said it first. You did it to me first. You 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 shout louder. I, I shout, but you shout louder. And then in laughter's and in humors, we try to make the tension go away and just stubbornly move on without dealing with forgiveness. And no wonder we're not joyful. No wonder we are not vibrant. No wonder your marriage is so happy. God has taught you. You are forgiven, so forgive. But forgiveness is so hard, so hard. It's more than just, I am sorry. It takes three seconds to do that. I am sorry, three seconds. But you know what? When you say, I am sorry, it's your whole being. It's your whole ego being put on the altar and say, I cross it. I'll be willing to break myself and say, I'm sorry. That's very humbling and sometimes humiliating. And maybe humiliation is what we need for us to wake up, for us to be vibrant. And for some of us, time to honor your parents. Your parents are perfect. They know that. But that long relationship straining is still going on. And you allow it to go on. And maybe it's time for you to go home and say, Mom and Dad, I love you. I forgive you. Let's start all over again. Others, you are playing with fire lately. You hang around with groups. You, you, you hang around with certain types of people and certain kinds of lifestyle, you are playing with fire. I don't know why it is. I just feel that I need to say it. 
you're playing fire. And for some of you, the friends that you are, the friendship that you are developing in the internet, and you know it's unhealthy. You know that. It's time to deal with it. Don't let it drag on. And for some of you, there's a game that is so addictive that it takes away your time for the Lord, it takes away your time for the church, it takes away your time for your devotions. And you know it. You know it. But you know what? Deep in your heart, you crave for it. You crave for it. You refuse to let go. Today, God's Word shines. God's Word study you. God's Word reads you. And for you to look at the mirror and say, not pretty, not pretty. I need to repent and be aligned with God. That's when revival breaks up. That's when your life begins to turn around. That's when you begin to say, Lord, you are truly Lord. Not by lip service, but when I say, Lord, you are the master of my life, you're the center of my life, I evolve around you, my Lord. That's a Christian life. Is that your life? Is that your life? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come under the teaching of God's word. And we are so grateful this morning that you have told us to allow God's word to read us so that we can be aligned. We can be right with you again. And as we come together in prayer, brothers and sisters, could you respond to God? What is God saying to you this morning? Are there areas of life that is being mentioned or not being mentioned, but God is convicting you? The Spirit is moving, is tucking you, saying, look at that, look at that. I'm not pleased with that. It's time for repentance. It's time to be right with God again. Because God is so gracious and so willing to forgive that when we even just come back to God and say, Lord, forgive me, He will. He's faithful and He's righteous. He will. Can you take a few moments to do that right now? Because as we share this morning, it's a Nike moment. It's time for actions. Let's spend a few moments before God and individually just ask the Spirit to search our hearts so that we can find areas of concerns that God is not pleased with and we can be right with him again in confessions, and he will forgive. Let's pray individually now. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to us today. Thank you for allowing your word to study us today so that we can know where we are spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally. And we know how to be right with God. May you forgive us of our sins. Help us to be right with you and to journey together as a vibrant church of disciple makers 
and continue to make disciple makers. So that the transforming power that is being experienced here is so visible, is so clearly, only God can do that, that it will draw people unto Christ. And not us, not FCBC, but you will draw people unto yourself. And we will be that witness. You call us to be witnesses. We will be that witness and proclaim the transforming power of Christ in our lives and in our church lives. We give you honor and glory, Lord. We thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.